Hello, and welcome to the Outer Circle Inner Stillness, conversations around spirituality, sobriety, the sober way of life, spiritual disciplines, and how they all work together. Uh, recently, I had the opportunity to travel up north to the Seattle area in Washington, in the Puget Sound on the coast, and get on a ferry across a foggy sea to Vashon Island. It is this delightful uh, this delightful forested island up in the Puget Sound, and you you get off the ferry and you uh, you drive up the road, and it's this winding road through fields, around the bay, up through hills, and you finally come to this long winding dirt driveway. Uh, midway up, you pass uh, the 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 Orthodox three bar cross. It's this big red emblem uh, nestled in the trees and shortly thereafter you come up to a all-merciful savior monastery and it is this little cluster of tiny buildings there's the there's the chapel it's like dark wood with the classic blue onion dome there's these uh, different cabins the the monk cells just brightly colored this little tiny village of tranquility and beauty and peace nestled in the forest and it's the most wonderful thing to to go on this long journey you know out of the city through industry across the sea uh, across the mountains and then to to come to this place of peace and uh, it's a really wonderful thing if you're ever in that area I highly recommend going to visit um, but here at the monastery uh, Abbot Trifon is the abbot and he's the he's the leader that had monk there uh also a, a writer and speaker about orthodox christian thought and i i asked him if he would be open to sharing some thoughts and some wisdom about the christian life um he has a, a long ago background in psychology and uh, he and i have talked a little bit about being a counselor and psychology and addictions and everything and so i thought that bringing a, a monastic perspective to these conversations around spiritual practice, uh, the sober way of life about recovery would be useful, if not interesting. So a couple of things to keep in mind for an episode like this. Um, on a technical note, so there are some technological glitches just in the way that we filmed it. Uh, there will be a couple of moments where the, the, the image lags a little bit as I was learning how to do the setup. So uh, the audio should still be good, so just hang tight through those moments and everything will be kind of smooth. Uh, on a content level, uh, always keep in mind that uh, the the monastic life is very distinct and very different from 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 lay people. Uh, it, monastics, monks, nuns, they're these men and women who their primary vocation is to God. And they they take themselves out of the world to gain clarity, to pray to enter the stillness, to wage war with demons, and to, to come away more holy and with, with more insights. Uh, not everyone can do this. And so as you listen to a monastic perspective, it's important to remember that it's not, not everything is going to translate neatly to our common everyday life. Most of us are not monastics. Most of us will not be monastics. So there always has to be a little bit of that translation that goes on. Um, also, uh, Abba Trifon in particular, he's a storyteller. And so there's a, there's, a, there's a flavor to how he conveys his truths and his information in that uh, there, there's a lot of story. And so it's, a, it's different than how we might 
uh, learn in a classroom because it's not necessarily here's a set of linear facts. Uh, learning from a story is like learning through metaphor. You have to be in it and experience it. So, uh, so keeping those things in mind that uh, you know we're we're venturing far out of the world to learn some perspectives that are in a way extreme because they're they're, they're monastic. So they're uh, so they're not going to be a complete fit for for what we do. But there's still insight there. You you step away from your life to gain perspective on it. And so there are valuable things that we can learn. There are valuable perspectives we can benefit from. At the very least, valuable perspectives that are worth pondering to some degree. And, and there's a lot of good stories. And it's really good to, to feel, to feel a truth, to experience the truth. Even if you don't know it with your intellect right away, that doesn't mean it's not true. That doesn't mean you're not benefiting from it. It's just a very different way of knowing. So then, thank you for listening. And... Here's a series of interviews, and I hope that you are greatly enriched by it. On the road today, on beautiful Vashon Island in the Puget Sound here at Almerciful Savior Monastery, uh, with special guest Abba Trifon, by the bus. Blessings of the Lord. I'm very thankful to be here. Glad to have you. Yes. Uh, and thank you also for spending some time with us. Um, would you uh, say a little bit about who you are, and what's your corner of the world. Okay. Well, I'm uh, going to be 77 in a few days, so I'm old. As I tell people, I'm old, I'm tired, and I'm tired of being old. Uh, my, my father, uh, who was a golf pro in Spokane and then later in northern Idaho, and so I, I grew up on a golf course with a dad who was very much a humorist and people person to the degree that as a, a young boy, I was embarrassed. I wish my dad would be a quiet businessman and not draw attention to us. And, and then when I turned 50, I remember looking into the mirror and saying to myself, oh my gosh, I've turned into dad. So, uh, I was raised Lutheran. Um, I originally, when I went off to college, my, my goal was I wanted to be an English college professor. And uh, when, I was after, when I was graduating and I was getting some advice uh, from a faculty member about graduate school and, and I said that I wanted to be uh, a college English professor and and he said, you know, there's such a glut out there. So many people your age that are getting masters and doctorates in that field and they don't get jobs. And you're, you know, isn't there any other area of interest that you have? And I said, well, I'm very interested in history. And I think I would be happy to be a history professor. And he says, it's the same thing. Too many people doing just that. Is there any other area of interest that you have? And I said, well, I liked my psychology classes. And he said, bingo, there'll always be need, a need for therapists. <laughs> so I ended up applying. Uh, I went to graduate school and got a doctorate and became a, a psychologist, a clinical psychologist. And then I got a, a job teaching, uh, not what I wanted to teach, but psychology in a college and uh, and then 
I remember a key moment for me was a friend of mine didn't get his tenure. And he was a brilliant man. And there was no way he should not have had tenure. But he didn't get it. And I knew the reason. He was short and fat, wore blue jeans, sneakers, uh, uh, Pendleton shirts, and sport coats. And he had a great big beard and big hair, and he did not look professional. I was one of those that wore nice suits and bow ties and trimmed beard, and I looked very professional. But this is a man that I greatly admired. And he was the most, most beloved faculty member by the students, both graduate and undergraduate students. And so I remember one day I asked him, what is it about you that makes you so popular among the students? And first he dismissed that as being a, not really a reality. And then he finally said, well, it's probably because the students know that I love them. They know that I value their opinion. And for me, when I walk into a, my classroom, I know that today I'm going to learn something from them. And I remember at that moment thinking, that's what I want to be like. And I tried to make myself become that kind of professor. Someone who's always learning. Somebody who's always learning from my students and who recognizes and values my students as, as intelligent. All of those things. And so um, as, I, as, as we, the year progressed, and then I was at a faculty cocktail party. And I was talking to two faculty members from another department. And one of them said to the two of us, I've got three years till I retire and I'm bored out of my mind. I don't know how I'm going to bear this class, this teaching for the three years I have left before I retire. I don't know how I'm going to do it. And this other professor said, oh, do what I do. I set out to destroy all the belief systems that my students come into the classroom with. I don't care what they believe, whether they agree with me, whether I agree with them or not, it's beside the point, I'm going to destroy all of their belief systems. And uh, the other guy said, oh, what a great idea. I'm going to start doing that. And I took my Manhattan and I walked away. I thought, I don't even want to be around these people. And I went over to a couple of friends of mine from my department, and I told them what I had just heard, and my friend said, oh, yeah, I'm not surprised. And then I thought, you know, do I want to spend the rest of my life working with people like that? What if it changes me? What if I become like that? So I decided I don't want to be like that. And I applied for a sabbatical, and somebody else had been granted the, their sabbatical time, and they had bowed, bowed out at the last moment. So they gave me a sabbatical earlier than I expected. So what I did is I, uh, I went on a road trip, and I bought a VW bus, and I packed it with camping equipment, and I took one book with me, uh, Herman Hesse's Siddhartha. 
which is his thinnest book. It was my favorite book in college, even though I was an English major. It was a, by a German author who, by the way, uh, Hitler had his books burned. And uh, so I just, uh, I wanted to be, Siddhartha is, a, is about a, a, the journey of a young uh, Indian prince uh, on, a, on a quest for spiritual enlightenment. And I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do. And at the time, I was an atheist, and uh, uh, or maybe at least an agnostic. You know, I didn't care whether God existed or not, and I was not religious. And uh, I had long abandoned my Lutheranism in, I think, my sophomore year in college. And so I decided that I needed to. Uh, discover for myself, is this the right thing for me to do the rest of my life? So I went on this eight-month sabbatical, and at the beginning of the seventh month, I was in San Francisco. I went to Cliff House, which was my favorite restaurant in my graduate school days. And on my way up from Cliff House, up going up Gary Boulevard, I saw the looming Holy Virgin, Joy of All Who Sorrow Cathedral, and I had been in there once as a college graduate student. And I just walked in and looked at it, and I remember thinking, wow, this is incredible. So I parked my car, and I went in, and I asked the man at the candle stand if he could tell me what, uh, what time are services Sunday morning. And he told me, he said, we're having a hierarchical liturgy at such and such a time with Archbishop Anthony. So I drove in from my friends in Berkeley uh, the Sunday morning, and I attended my first divine liturgy, a hierarchical divine liturgy. And I remember when the doors of the holy um, gates opened, the royal doors opened, and I saw the altar and the tabernacle, and, and all of a sudden, I felt like, oh my gosh, God does care about how he's worshipped. Because when I was a young 10-year-old, I had asked our Lutheran pastor, we had just finished studying at Vacation Bible School, we had just finished studying uh, the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament that God designed. And I remember asking the pastor, if God so cared so much about how he's worshipped, that he, the architect of the, of the universe, designed the temple in Jerusalem and the vestments of the priests and told each of the type of priests what they were to do in that temple to worship him. Why would he not care now? And the pastor's response was, uh, well, they were under the old covenant. And so it has nothing to do with us now. We're under the new covenant. And I felt two things when I heard that. One, I felt cheated because I was so fascinated with how God was, was worshipped in the Old Testament temple. And I felt like, oh, wish, wish we'd do that today. But the other thing is, I thought, what a lame answer. I mean, how God doesn't change. change. Why would God care then, but he doesn't care now? But I respected the pastor, and I put my thoughts to rest. I thought, oh, I'm, I won't talk about that anymore. I won't think about that. So here I am standing in 
uh, in a liturgy, and I'm seeing the priests in their beautiful vestments, and the archbishop, and the royal doors opening, and beholding the holy of holies. And I thought, God does care, and here it is. And then I, uh, fortunately, uh, in God's divine providence, there were a number of monks that were there for that service. So on my way out of the church in the narthex, I went up to these monks and I, and I said, excuse me, but are you, do you have time that I could ask you some questions? And they said, sure. So they ended up inviting me, inviting me to their Vesper service that evening. At the time, there was still the monastery in San Francisco. It's long closed and moved. So I went to the Vesper service and then I just poured out questions to them. And, uh, and I remember feeling like I, this is Christianity. This is the first time I've actually encountered Christianity, biblical Christianity. And uh, so I knew I needed to have this for myself. So I ended up writing two letters, letters of resignation, one to the college and one to the clinic. I didn't tell them what I was going to do because I knew what would happen. I would be the subject of psychoanalysis at cocktail parties. And it was not too long after that that I became Orthodox and I became a monk. And, and that was 40-some years ago. Mm. And I have never regretted my decision, ever. Mm. And... I, uh, I, and I think that because of that, the, the impact that orthodoxy had on me, and I remember thinking, gee, I wish I had discovered orthodoxy when I was still in college. You know, I had more years there, and you know, and uh, and so it's become sort of my um, calling, if you will, to reach out to young people today with orthodoxy, which is why I do my my daily blog articles, uh, abbottrefon.com, uh, my YouTube videos at least once a week. Um, I go on speaking engagements. Uh, I do all of this because I've, exper I, I've discovered the pearl of great price and I want it to be seen. And also because I loved teaching and I loved my students. And it gives me an opportunity to be with young people, mm -hmm. even in my old age, and even though I'm no longer teaching. If I might muse on uh, some of what you said, which thank you again for, for sharing your story and, and all that's in there. And, uh, you know, a couple of things that stand out, um, you know, Spiritually, theologically speaking, I mean, yes, the the truth of the Orthodox faith, the fullness of the faith, uh, yeah, it matters how we worship, and you know, God God is very particular about this, and I think there's there's something in that, um, you know, spiritually speaking, you know, we we in the church we kind of know this uh, motif, this imagery of you know, follow the narrow path, not not the broad way, and and I'm coming to think that even in uh, sobriety, in in recovery work, there there's something like that too. Uh, there, there, there's a way that it works, 
and there, there's a, a particular shape to it. And there's a lot of things that people try that ultimately don't quite work. And it sounds like that's something that you had discovered. Uh, you, you get this initial sense of here's, here, here's, here's the way, and then ask questions to figure out what it is. Um, one of the other things you'd mentioned too, uh, talking about that moment uh, at the cocktail parties, watching your colleagues plot on how they're going to you know, tear down people's frameworks. Um, one of the, as I'm working with younger people, uh, people younger than me, uh, a big question that comes up has to do with jobs and vocation. And, and sometimes it comes up as people recognize, hey, my job environment is super stressful and super chaotic and it's hard to stay sober. It's hard to be calm. It's hard to maintain an inner life because of everything is so loud. Sometimes we talk about the idea of like, well, do you need a different job? And we go back and forth, back and forth. Uh, something you had said, uh, I, I heard that one of the deciding factors was recognizing how the job changes you and how the environment you're in has a transformative changing impact on you, which I feel like is a really important thing. Not just will this job give me money or take me toward my goals or is it fun and interesting, but really looking at, I'm going to be in this environment a lot. Uh, what's the effect that it has on me? What's, what inner trajectory does it set me on? That sounds like that was a really important moment for you. It was. And you know, when I look at our society today, I was thinking about this the other day because I was talking to an old friend of mine uh, who's my age. And when we were children, and especially when I was, you know, in my, I, I, I was born in Spokane, Washington. Uh, I was, uh, we lived there. My dad was a golf pro. We lived there until uh, uh I was just entering the seventh grade when we moved to Sandpoint, Idaho. My dad wanted his sons to grow up in a small town, and he had been there as a child as well. So we moved to Sandpoint. But I remember this, the, um, my neighborhood in Spokane, everybody went to church. I don't remember people in junior high in Sandpoint there was a, the, only one student that was not a churchgoer. He was the guy that would walk across the street as a seventh grader to a tiny little Mon Pa grocery store so he was off campus to smoke a cigarette during school hours. When we had a few breaks and we would go across the street to get a candy bar or whatever, and he would walk across the street. And I remember... He always looked exhausted, like he didn't sleep. And he was always the subject of conversation about the other kids, like, oh, you know, what's wrong with him and all. And, and we, our conclusion was that he must not have a very happy home life. I'm sure that was the case. Uh, a few years ago, Vashon Island, as, and I was the police chaplain at the time, and Vashon Island uh, went through a year where we had the highest concentration of uh, uh, percentage of, of, of young people committing suicides in the whole state of Washington. And nobody seemed to understand why. And I remember at the time that I had a lot of, because I met people through my role as a chaplain, I had people come over here to the monastery for counseling with me, parents or siblings. Uh, I remember once a, some per, young person who was, um, you know, after his 
her friend died, she was in, she was thinking, that's what I want to do. I want to commit suicide. So her parents brought her to see me. And so therapists on the island weren't doing her any good. And the, and the standard uh, explanation as to what was happening with this, why are we having this huge surge of suicides, was how could that be here on an island that is beautiful with trails and beaches and forests and, you know, we have the best life out here. Well, yeah, if you're an old person, it's perfect. But if you're a young person, you know, where do you hang out with your friends? If, if the only place is school and, and you don't go to church. And I was talking to some of the ministers on the island about it at the time. And one of them had gone to the funeral of a young suicide victim. And it was in a church. It was in an evangelical church, but it wasn't a religious service. It was basically uh, all of these families and friends of the deceased were there with a big screen looking at slide projections of this young fellow's life and all the happy moments and people would come up, up to the pulpit and say oh i remember you know and they tell a little funny story nobody mentioned his suicide no one mentioned god and here was a church and that's really what's happening across our country is that people are young people don't go to church anymore. I remember a few years ago, I was in Berkeley and I, uh, I went to this old coffee house on the north side of the campus near the Graduate Theological Union. It was a, camp, it was a coffee house that was owned by a Palestinian Orthodox man that I'd gotten to know in my years in Berkeley. And so I, I, I went to one coffee house on Telegraph Avenue, Mediterranean, which is the oldest in Berkeley. And it was a place I used to hang out a lot as a student. And it was closed. I couldn't believe it. I thought that place would never close. And I peered in the window, and I could see that the interior was being turned into a fast food place. So then I thought, oh, dear. So I walked out and continued down the block to the corner where one of my favorite bookstores always was, Shakespeare's. Shakespeare's was gone, and there was another coffee house. And I looked in the window, and I saw a sea of young people with their laptops open and the light from the laptops shining on their faces. And I didn't see any books. I didn't see any students talking to each other. They were all on their laptops. Yeah, not quite the angelic light. Yes. Or they're texting. I didn't go in. How, how, why would I want to go into a place like that? Mm -hmm. So then I remembered the North Campus coffee house that I used to love to go to. So I drove over there. I walked in. It was the same thing. Rows of young people with their laptops opening, opened, and no one talking to each other and no books. 
And I thought, oh my gosh, I, I can't believe this. Mm. And I was with a friend of mine, and I, I said to him, I said, well, let's take our, our cappuccinos and sit outside at one of those tables because I don't want to see this. I don't want to look at this. Mm. So we're walking out with our cappuccinos as the owner walks in. And, oh, Father Trifon, huh? it's good to see you again. And, and then I said, what's happening to our society? I can't believe this. And he said, that's why I turned this business over to my son. The guy that made you your cappuccino is my son. And I turned it over to him because I can't bear coming in here anymore, hmm. seeing what I'm seeing. Yeah. Oh, I, I wonder, mm, I, what in both the the spiritual life, church world, uh, we frequently hear, you know, it's it's as best, it's as vital to to be in church and to, to be gathering. And in in the counseling world and then in the recovering world, uh, there's a lot of evidence that supports, you know, group work is really, really effective, sometimes even more effective, oftentimes more effective than just individual work. But uh, I feel like in, in all of these circles, there's a lot of resistance. People saying like, ah, yeah. I don't want to go to group. I don't want to be around other people with problems. Like, I don't need that. Um, and I guess, which I, I'm very much sold on, I need to be in community. I need to be participating in the divine liturgy with, with other people. I need to be in a support group. I need to be in community. So like, I'm, I'm very sold on that. I wonder though, if you could say a bit about why we need to be with other people and can't just learn to do the faith from, from books, you know, why isn't reading about recovery sufficient? Why do I need to be in group? Why isn't reading the church father sufficient? Why isn't reading the Bible on its own enough to carry me through the rigors of life? Why do I need to be with people? Okay, well, when I was a therapist, um, like yourself, I, uh, I found myself wanting to do group therapy because I found it to be the most successful. That all started back in the early, it might have been 1970, I don't remember for sure. But I remember I went through a period of, of deep depression and wondering what am I going to do with my life and I, how am I going to get through school and et cetera, et cetera. And so I started to see a psychologist. And one of the things that he did was he was really big on group therapy. And initially, I thought, why would I want to go through group therapy? I want to see the psychologist. I want to talk directly to him about and have him help me through this and help me get well. But the thing about group therapy that made me want to use it as a therapist was that when you've got maybe, say, six or seven people in a group and the therapist is there and and you're at that moment you're dealing with that one person's issues everybody in the group has to participate or they want to participate because that's what happens in a group like that so you're so it's not this one person with a therapist it's one person with the group that he's gotten to know because he heard from them the follow the last weekend or the week. And then in turn, what it does is it helps the person who's off 
who is not the focal of point of this talk, but he's trying to help the person as well with his feedback, which, which turns him into a caring person, which in turn helps him progress psychologically. And I have to say that the thing, same thing happens uh, in the church. Um, I'm really grateful that I'm in a monastery because even though there were times when I'm like in Northern Idaho and I, I, I drove this last summer, I drove past this beautiful log home on the beach. And I remember telling my brother, boy, wouldn't I love to own that place with its dock and its boat. And then I kind of fantasized, well, what would my, my life be like if I, all of a sudden, you know, somebody gave me a million dollars or a billion dollars, you won at the lottery or whatever, go out and spend this money, I'll buy that place and I'll live on the beach and I'll sit next to my fireplace with a martini. But what would be missing in that is my community. And it's, it's community that gives me life. And it's the same way in church. Um, when, you know, it, it's, it's not enough to just announce, oh, well, I'm now a Christian. Or I've joined myself to the Orthodox Church. What good is membership in the church if you're not seriously engaged in the life of the church? If you're not really being changed by the church. You're not getting changed by the church. And essentially what that does is it makes it kind of like my description of the coffee houses. People are there, but they're not there. They're not engaged with anybody else. They're, they're totally focused on, oh, well, here I am and now I want to get out. And the rest of the week as they walk out, the rest of the week has nothing to do with church. It has nothing to do with God. They don't even think about the Lord during that time. They don't think about it at all. And if we're going to be deepening our faith and getting that transformation that, that we know happens within the hospital of the soul, which is the church, but we're acting as though it's a museum. You know, what good is it? You know, you can, I, I, love, I love going in a museum and especially history museums. Um, but if my whole life was in a history museum, what would my life be like? I, I mean, it would be like I would be living a life in the past surrounded by artifacts from the past and, and the thing about being part of the church is that we are, are one body. And so it's the body of Christ is not just about Jesus Christ. It's about membership in his church, which makes us part of the body. And that means that we need to have one another in our journey. So I... I'm surrounded by my fellow monks and we're all have every one of us here is completely different from the other. We're all very different from one another. 
I don't even know whether we would be friends outside of the monastery because that's how different we are with our interests and our backgrounds and so on. But, but what draws us together are the divine services and uh, the readings during trapeze meal, and which all of this is aided in, in our ability to love one another as a family. So we've become family. And the sad thing that I see in our society today, which I think leads to mental instability and, and depression and even suicide, is that people today don't have that bond and that connection. When I was growing up in Spokane, I remember that all my aunts and uncles and all my cousins and all of my grandparents all lived in the same town. And I remember playing with my cousins on Saturdays. I remember going to in, in, in Manitou Park with my grandmother and my cousins for picnics and an afternoon of playing. I remember all of that clearly. And now, when you see, I remember one time I was sitting in a restaurant on a balcony in Polsbo, the Norwegian town. And I was waiting for a priest friend of mine um, at, the, at the parish in Polsbo to join me for, for, for lunch on the balcony. I'm sitting there and I'm looking across the street and there's a little coffee house and there's some guy sitting there uh, with his uh, phone, uh, texting on his phone. And uh, a young woman comes by and she ducked in, came out with her coffee. And, and I presumed she said, do you mind if I sit here? And I'm watching this. She's got a dog with her and I'm looking down there and I, I kept waiting for this guy to take this opportunity to start talking. Oh, here I, I this is my name, you know, and, but it didn't happen. She sat down, she had her texting going on, he was texting. And I thought, in my day, that wouldn't have happened. We would have actually maybe become friends. Mm -hmm. We would have started talking. What an odd thing to do, yeah. you know? But they weren't. Yeah. I'm imagining a scenario and, and thinking, I can imagine it where, yes, we, we chat and we become friends. But I'm also aware of like my own insecurities now. Like I'm like, well, if I start chatting, is she going to think I'm hitting on her? And like, I just, there's this whole uh, mindset shift that that's gone on. That well, I'll tell you something that got more interesting about that. Okay. My priest friend finally arrived and he's sitting down at this little table with me. And I pointed over there, I see, I said, I was, gave him an example. I said, look at that couple. I said, they're, they're, the, the woman came later with her dog. She sat down and she didn't say anything to him and he didn't say anything to her. And they're both texting. And I said, this is not what human beings are supposed to be like, you know? I mean, uh, it's certainly not anything that our ancestors would have done. They would have been engaging in conversation. That's what made pubs in, in places like Great Britain so popular. It wasn't the booze they were serving. It was everybody going in there, eating together, drinking together, laughing together. Yeah. And it's gone. Just as I said that, they got up and they walked off together 
with the dog. They were a couple. They were a couple. And I had been watching this whole thing play out. I had no idea. It, they were a couple. And I think about how many young people today get come home from school and they go to their bedroom and they open their laptops and they text or they text their friends or the number of times I've actually witnessed people texting each other and they're sitting at the same table. I mean, how bizarre is that? So think of how when people do that with their social life, what happens when an individual claims to be an Orthodox Christian and they prove it by going to the Divine Liturgy every weekend, but the moment they walk out of that church, they may or may not stay for the coffee hour or the meal. But once they've left that place, they're back into that same life, texting friends, sitting on a laptop, even in a coffee house, not engaging with anybody. Mm. And if we're going to have our faith actually transform us and change us and go deep into the heart and take the mind into the heart, which is what our Orthodox journey is about, what good is it if the rest of the time that we're not in church is about our secular life only? Mm. We never talk about faith because we don't want to... Uh, we don't want to offend someone or have them think, oh my gosh, he's religious. I mean, I've seen that happen a lot. I, I, I remember once when I, uh, we had some young people visit the monastery and, uh, and then this couple came. And one of the young people knew the man of this couple. And he said, oh, are you Orthodox? Oh, yes, are you? Yes, they worked together. And they didn't know that they both held to the same faith. That's funny in a sad sort of way. I mean... Yeah. I, I really feel this tension, though, of... Um, like like you're talking about... like and, and at this point, I'm a few years into my Orthodox walk, and I, I, I can... I know I, I can recognize that shift from, from, from head to heart a little bit more. Or I can recognize when now I'm more in the inner stillness or more presence or more a little bit more aware of here here's the spiritual realities around me and and, and it's it's comforting it's beautiful it's wonderful and and i and i love it and i and i feel that like once i once i leave sunday and like and i go back to my office and i the nature of my job it's it's very busy it's frantic there's lots of things lots of technology i'm on the computer a lot uh i'm just with people a lot and so I, I feel that really sharp shift between like here I am in like like the actual realities, the spiritual realities, and then a lot of the rest of the week I'm inundated with just like what poses as reality, like like the secular world. And so um I know that's a question for me personally. Like how do I how do I how do I change? Like is is liturgy on its own enough? Do I need to also be at other services? What what else should I be doing on a daily basis to 
I don't know, on one sense to preserve myself, much less become transformed. Mm-hmm. What are what are some things you've discovered are like essential on a day to day basis if one is really serious about transforming? I remember a young man once told me that uh, he had a little tiny icon in his cubicle at his work, and uh, and then he had his little his Bible there, and one day his boss walked in and said. Uh, I want all of that out of here. I don't want religion brought into the workplace. Never mind there was a young woman that worked there that wore this, you know, the Muslim garb, you know, didn't matter. He didn't want this guy to have his little icon and his Bible in the workplace. And so this fellow shared with me that what he had been told. And, and uh, so what I suggested is that he put an icon as a screensaver. So when you open your computer or you turn on your computer, the first thing you see is this image of the Holy Virgin, which he did. And then I said, I'll tell you what, since you're not allowed to have your Bible there and therefore can't do the daily readings there, I will copy the scripture readings for the day and I will send them to you on a daily basis. Because I said, are you allowed to read uh, your own private email? And he said, yes. So I said, well, I'll email you every day. And then pretty soon, oh, would you add such and such? He, he would really like to do this. Or I have this friend who would really like to, to read your blogs every day, your emails every day. Your... So I started doing quotes from the fathers. And then thinking about this horrible gray-white cubicle, but a place terrible place to have to be cooped up in. So I started sending him photographs of the monastery, the icons, the services, etc. I even got in the habit of of sending him, uh, you know, photos that were taken during matins every morning. I would take a few photos. I, I'm I'm an avid photographer since I was fourteen. So I had my my uh, iPhone, and I would take these pictures, and then I'd send them the next day to him. So he would have this sense of being connected. And eventually, there were so many people on that list by their request or request of their friends. And I happened to mention it one day to a fellow that I uh, know on the island we were standing at this latte stand and I told him about what I'm doing. And, and he said, you do realize that at some point uh, it's going to be seen as um, uh, what's the word uh, where they remove you. Um, oh, like spam? Spam. Oh, okay. He said, you're going to be found out that they'll be deciding that this is spam and they're going to cut you out. And he said, you need a blog. And I said, what's a blog? <laughs> and so he showed me his blog. And then I said, could you set me up to have a blog? And he said, sure. And then my brother, uh, who's uh, a writer, said one day, you know, when, when you write something personally, rather than just have a quote from the fathers, it has, a more, has more of an impact. Why don't you do that? And I said, well, I have to be inspired to write. And my brother said, 
Do you think that I wait to write until I'm inspired? He says, I get up in the morning and I go to my desk and I'm at work. And he said, sometimes it takes me, you know, just writing a paragraph that I may dump, but it gets me going. And then I'm writing Mm -hmm. and then I'm publishing. Yeah. And so I thought, Okay, and then but I said, but how do I do it? And he says, you're an, you're an extemporaneous speaker. Why don't you write like you speak? So I started doing that. And I've got now, on Facebook alone, I've got 40, almost 43,000 people that follow me on Facebook. Not, you know, plus all the other places that I'm at, including my own blog, abbottrefon.com. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the, the the writer in me is recognizing. So as I'm 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 pulling out some, some some things here. So the writer in me recognizes the value of like the daily discipline of writing, and definitely not completely reliant on inspiration. Inspiration is lovely when it comes, and there's a lot more of just like the grit and the grind of like I have to show up. Um, I often use metaphors of like if you're learning the piano, you do your scales. They're hideously dull, but they're what strengthens your fingers. Or you know people who are doing bodybuilding, like they they show up rain or shine, whatever they feel like, because it's it's the repetition. Uh, it's it's a practice, not the feeling about the practice that has benefit. Um, but you're talking too about, uh, so back to this fellow in the, in the cubicle, um, you know, I'm hearing again, like the value of, uh, you know, the daily scriptures, the daily prayers, the daily musings on the fathers. Uh, I guess like the, the correlate in the recovery world would be like some sort of, some sort of reading, some sort of like intellectual learning, um, but it's interesting. You you're also incorporating like beauty as well, like like the photographs, and they can imagine that taking place either as like exposing yourself to something beautiful, going outside regularly, um, in some way though, like centering your awareness on something mm-hmm. something beautiful, something a little bit transcendent. Uh, sounds like that ends up being pretty pretty vital for for vitalizing the spirit. You know, when I was a therapist. Um, uh, and a lot of times, and as, as you certainly have experienced, you go through stressful periods because of patients that you're seeing, you know, and and it's hard to walk away. Um, and even my years, I put in 18 years as a police and fire chaplain on the island. And some of those moments that I had that were extremely stressful and uh, and disconcerting. I remember one case where it was so horrendous that I... When I left the scene, I, I pulled off the side of the road and cried for 15 minutes because it was so stressful. But when I was teaching, I set two hours aside every day where I would go running for an hour and then I'd go to the gym, sit in the sauna for a half hour, and then go back to my office and have a quick bite to eat of a sandwich that I brought. And that got me through a lot, and I did it religiously. And I used to go to Cannon Beach, Oregon, to a little cabin that I had, and I would do the same thing there. I would get there Friday night, and I'd go running on the beach, and I did it rain or shine. I can remember running on the beach with with gale-forced winds and rain, but I did it anyway. And I, and I think 
you know, people come to me on occasion and they say, Father, you know, my mind is so distracted during services. You know, I'm always thinking of this or I'm always thinking of that, you know. And well, it's kind of like weightlifting. Uh, you don't just become orthodox and walk in and become like a church father. That just doesn't happen. What what I um, what I experience when I over the years when I've seen uh, people struggle with concentration in services, that's where the Jesus prayer can come in. Um, so, you know, if you're standing in the divine liturgy and on one Sunday you're thinking, oh my gosh, I can't keep my mind focused on the service. I keep going back to, oh, where am I going to go for the weekend or next weekend? Or, or oh my gosh, I'm going to be meeting with my boss Monday morning and I'm hoping he's not going to chew me out about something. <clears throat> but if you're saying the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you're saying it over and over in your mind with the aid of the prayer rope or the prayer beads. Um, and it's not like you do it a couple times and you're a master at that. It's kind of like the weightlifting. I remember when I was uh, just got out of college before graduate school and I, I wanted to be like a lot of young men. I wanted to be buff. So I was living in Portland, Oregon, and I heard about this place called Le Prinzi's Gym. And Le Prinzi's was this classic weightlifting gym. Not all this modern stuff, but, you know, weight, just the normal uh, dead weights and, you know, all that stuff. And I, and I heard so much about it that I thought, I'm going to go see about joining that place. So I went in there one afternoon and paid my fee to join. And then I remember I went out and I lifted some dead weight. I tried. I couldn't lift it. And it was fairly small. So then I went to a smaller one and I tried to lift that and I barely lifted it. And an old guy, probably 65, comes up to me and he says, Hey, kid, would you like me to teach you how to lift weights? And I said, would you? And he said, sure. It turns out that Leprinzi's, one of the things that sets Leprinzi's aside from a lot of other weightlifting places, is there's a lot of old people there that have been lifting weights their whole lives. They're not like, look at me. They're fellowshipping together. They have friendships that they've developed, and they feel really good keeping their bodies in shape. And they want to help by passing it on. So they didn't look at me as, why did this loser come in here? They looked at me as a potential one of them. Well, let's teach this kid how to do it. The same day that this guy got me started, another young man came in, about my age. And he went over and started to lift weights. And another old guy, it was a friend of this fellow's, goes over there and says, hey, kid, can I help you out? Can I show you how to lift weights? I don't need help. About three or four months later, I'm standing there talking to these two old fellows. And one of them, and this guy walks in, the young guy. And one of them says, 
do you notice anything weird about him? And I looked over and, he, and I said, yeah. I said, he's got all these muscles developed in the front, but his legs have no work on them and his back has no work on them. And, I, and the other fellow says, well, what's, what's, how's this resulted in, what, what's it done for him? And I said, well, he's kind of leaning forward. And the other guy said, like a skinny ape. Mm. It's because he didn't, he's his own trainer. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to what it is like to be an Orthodox Christian. It's not a bit about being our own trainer. That's why we have the collective worship together. That's why we have priests that are set aside for that service, to give us spiritual direction, to hear our confessions, to advise us on the spiritual path. That's why we have monasteries to go to, to seek spiritual direction. That's why we have a myriad of books out there. Everyone who's Orthodox should be reading at least one book a week, either on the Church Fathers or on the life of a saint or on the doctrine of the Church. Because if we do that, then we are literally making the Church part of our everyday life. And which is why I started doing the blog, because I wanted to aid people in doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it Make it easier for them. Because I remember when I first decided that this is something that I needed to do uh, to have an actual blog, was I read the, the former patriarch of Moscow um, was quoted as telling his bishops if we don't use the internet, only the devil will use the internet. He's got a point. And so it's one thing to say, oh, you should stay off the internet. You know, Facebook is terrible, blah, blah, blah. And I've had people tell me that. Why are you on Facebook? They're horrible. Well, I have to agree. Most of what's on Facebook and what happens with people on Facebook is pretty bad. But I hear from hundreds of people every month who are following me on Facebook. It's a place where people are. So. That's where they are. Yeah. And that's where I am. Mm-hmm. I don't go off on other things on Facebook. Mm-hmm. The only thing I'm looking at is what I've written and what the responses are. Mm-hmm. And if there's somebody I can help. That's the only thing about Facebook that I'm interested in. But at the same token, knowing that Facebook is having its problems, I'm, I'm, I've got MeWe and a number of others that I'm doing, mm-hmm. plus my own personal blog page, yeah. abbottrefon.com. <laughs> right.